This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Hip fractures have a major impact on our healthcare system, with an economic burden estimated to be over $20 billion per year. Due to the increasing age of our population, hip fractures will have an even greater impact. In addition to the economic burden, hip fractures are associated with an increase in mortality and often result in major changes in one's lifestyle. As a result, the detection, prevention, and treatment of osteoporosis becomes an important health strategy. Today's topic is osteoporosis, calcium, and vitamin D, and to discuss this topic, we're joined by Dr. Kurt Kennel, a Mayo Clinic endocrinologist and specialist in bone metabolism. Thanks for joining us today, Kurt. Very happy to be here. If we talk about calcium, is there a difference between dietary calcium and a calcium supplement? Yeah. I think we would want to say there is. So part of this is challenging to study because people don't eat a nutrient, they eat food, which is many nutrients, right? And so when we associate diets with better outcomes, it may not be a given nutrient, it may be the portfolio of nutrients. So a good example in bone would be protein. When you get more dairy intake, you also get more protein intake. And there's lots of evidence that protein intake is good for bone, especially with aging, mm-hmm. where we don't get that with a pill, obviously. Right. Um, some people would also point out things related to um, the type and duration of the calcium exposure. So with the dietary calcium, we have a more gradual exposure to the calcium. With the pill, we have a more sudden, abrupt exposure as well. So I think the talking point remains that diet has greater efficacy or greater potential for benefit. Um, including we're thinking beyond the bones, and that we use supplements really to make up a deficit that we can't otherwise accomplish with the diet. Mm -hmm. And many of our patients not only have osteopenia, osteoporosis, but also hyperlipidemia. So calcium-containing foods are often high in saturated fats, Mm so we're often telling to avoid dairy products. (laughs) On the other hand, that's not the best for their bones. So we often do recommend a calcium supplement. And what's the difference between calcium carbonate, which is the most probably the most common form Mm. of supplement, versus calcium citrate. There are pros and cons to each. So carbonate, we would, you know, like it in the sense that it's the most calcium per pill size. So we can get more calcium without having to take as large or as many a pill, which is usually attractive. Um, Not as well absorbed, but if it's taken with a protein-containing meal, can be well absorbed. Um, Would be associated with more constipation, which could be a concern for some individuals. Can be cheaper. Citrate, you could argue, is better. You could say it's better absorbed, uh, including on an empty stomach, but generally requires uh, a larger or more total tablets to get the same amount of calcium than it would be coming from carbonate. So in my practice, I tend to favor citrate if it doesn't cause a burden Mm -hmm. for someone. Uh, Maybe it's more friendly for their bowel, for example, and and yet if they say it comes down to me to number of pills per day or cost, then I might say, well, carbonate could be good enough, but please take it with a meal. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how much calcium should we be recommending? So our total dietary goal, our total daily goal, could be 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams. And I think that's a key point because the average person may be getting 600, maybe 800 milligrams of calcium in their diet per day with a reasonably healthy diet. You know, they're getting some fruits and vegetables. They're maybe getting a little bit of dairy. So if we're going to use a calcium supplement, we're usually talking about one serving a day of calcium supplement, you know, five, 600 milligram total. We're not looking to get the whole 1,200 milligrams per day through pills. That would be unusual to require that if there wasn't some other issue with digestion and absorption, for example. 
So we should start with the idea that a people could maybe be getting 600 milligrams and how can we make up that difference? And if they can identify dietary ways to add an additional 600 milligrams of calcium through maybe low-fat dairy, for example, we've accomplished that. Mm -hmm. If they can't, maybe there's the role for the calcium supplement. Okay. I recall years ago, I was advised to tell my patients not to take a calcium supplement at bedtime mm -hmm. because some of the calcium that's absorbed gets into the urine and you're not drinking it during your sleep and the urine gets more concentrated with more calcium mm -hmm. and you're at risk for forming kidney stones. But I've never seen anything written on that. Mm. Is, is that, is that is any truth to that? I don't believe so, no. Okay. Now urine calcium excretion does go up at night in all of us as we're, sup as we're lying down, for example. Um, and some actually favored giving calcium supplements at bedtime because it was felt that an increase in bone breakdown occurring when you're supine at night was part of why the urine calcium went up. So it would be the opposite argument, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the studies that I've done looking at that didn't show a benefit from a bone point of view. So if there's a question from a stone point of view, I don't think I would either. Okay. Um, so no, I'm not aware of any specific information that proved that point. But okay, we, good. Yeah. Now, on the internet, and we all know that everything on the internet has got to be true because it's on the internet, uh, there's some sites that promote taking vitamin K. Mm -hmm for reduced bone density. Is there anything yeah. related to that? There is, you know, and I think it's just one of those challenges we have in, in medicine where we wanna be open-minded to these ideas. We just may not be satisfied with the, the quality of the evidence available to support the idea. So in the world of vitamin K, for example, vitamin K is clearly an important nutrient for bone. It's an important a nutrient in part of what makes a, a type of non-collagen protein in the bone called osteocalcin. And clearly, if you're vitamin K deficient, you don't make that correctly, and that can affect bone building. It's just that it's very difficult to find uh, evidence that with an average diet, with a reasonably healthy diet, a diet that would be following other guidelines, that people will be vitamin K deficient to the point that it would be clinically relevant. Uh, we have a few studies giving vitamin K supplements, including the vitamin K2 metabolite, which is the one that's preferred for bone, and it's oftentimes touted as part of why you'd want to take this supplement. And again, only one trial that suggested a, a small benefit, not on fractures, but on bone density. And so we're looking for a little bit more than that you know, in terms of generalizing and saying, hey, everyone should be doing this, and we don't have that kind of data. So again, I tend to, re to uh, regress that right back to that issue of diet again, to say, well, if you can get vitamin K through, again, uh, vegetables, for example, you'll be fine. You'll be okay. fine. I recall when the bisphosphonates first came on the market, mm -hmm. uh, we thought they appeared to be very, very safe and we were prescribing them mm. quite freely. Mm. And I think now we've become more selective, but how do we determine when a patient qualifies for more pharmacologic therapy beyond the supplements of calcium and D? I, I very much agree with your historical perspective. I think we used to be more fearful of the word osteopenia and a T-score that was slightly low and not really integrate that with everything else, like how old is the patient, have they fractured or not, and we were probably too too aggressive and, and not necessarily benefiting people as much as we would like. So to look at where that could then lead us, um, first and foremost, people who have fractures, people who have low trauma fractures, who have low bone density after age 50, that is our, our best targeted group to be treating because there's the most people we're gonna help with the least number of people we're gonna have trouble with in the process. So I tend to try to guide my patients away from being too focused on the bone density number when they've already manifest osteoporosis with low trauma fractures, because I think it can be almost a distraction, quite mm -hmm. frankly, because in those, I think pharmacotherapy, drug therapy uh, is very appropriate and very indicated and will much likely help them than hurt them. People who have um, not had fractures, but have lower bone density, I think a key driver there is age. 
So it's hard to have a high fracture risk when you're 55. Even if your T-score is minus two, and we use that word osteopenia, and assuming you're lacking other major concerns regarding you know, tobacco use and whatnot, if you run the numbers using a fracture risk calculator like that FRAX calculator, you're gonna be underwhelmed at how many people are actually gonna break a bone in the next 10 years, and we would only change that by a person or two by taking this drug, and that just doesn't seem really valuable or worth it when I have, especially if I have questions regarding side effects. Mm -hmm. So in some of those younger people, I think it's a more a matter of saying, well, we would recommend drug therapy for you, but at a later date. And we're hoping for a long life, and we don't want this to be an issue when you're in your 70s and 80s, for example, but maybe not so keen on treatment in, in, the, in the 50s and early 60s like we might have been you know, when Fosamax first came out sure. in 96. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think most <clears throat> clinicians are somewhat comfortable with the bisphosphonates because they've been around for quite a while, but there's some other treatments out there. Mm -hmm. Why don't you uh, go into some of those? Yeah. So um, I totally agree with your point about bisphosphonates being kind of the, the gold standard, both from a number of points of view, I guess you could say. But there are times we might consider other therapies. Um, bone building drugs. Um, so these are drugs that actually stimulate the bones to actually truly build bone where there wasn't otherwise bone. Um, these are daily injections. So that's a bit of a turnoff for some people, and they are expensive. Um, but they are shown to be the most effective in people who've already presented with fractures. So if I'm a younger person, especially maybe 50s, 60s, 70s, and I've already had vertebral compression fractures, uh, and people who've taken steroids who have low bone density and fractures, these drugs are probably superior. Now, like a lot of things you and I are presented with, there's good and better. So it's not wrong to use a bisphosphonate in those situations. I just think it's appropriate to consider the more aggressive approaches because they might be uh, advantageous to certain people. Um, these medicines are a bit unique. These are uh, medicines like teriparatide, Forteo, uh, abaloparatide, Timlos. They're a bit unique because they're just used for two years, and you are required to take medication to maintain that effect thereafter. So taking them really is a commitment to long-term medication. It's not just a two-year and then I'm, I'm free of medicine. This is a commitment to taking more medicine thereafter, typically a bisphosphonate. Uh, the other big consideration is um, uh, Prolia, which is denosumab as a generic. This is a kind of more of a new medicine, uh, kind of modern medicine approach where we discover what the key protein is and we target with an antibody in the laboratory. And this injection is basically an antibody that's lasting for about six months at a time that blocks bone breakdown. Um, very potent, more potent than bisphosphonates. The challenge with, uh, so in that regard, very effective, uh, clearly effective. The challenge with Prolia is that uh, there's really no endpoint to its use. It's, it's once started, presumably going to be taken forever. So uh, some people confuse prolia with bisphosphates in terms of drug holidays. They think, well, we'll use it for a while, and then we'll take a break and kind of see how things go. That's a typical Fosamax kind of routine, five years and then reassess. Mm -hmm. That is not our approach with prolia. Prolia is really, I'm beginning this medication, I'm taking it indefinitely. And that's not just because of, um, uh, you know, uh, the mechanism of action, when we stop taking prolia, if we don't take that injection every six months, there's actually a accelerated bone loss that occurs. And now some case reports of people who are breaking bones and having high calcium values during that wearing off phase. So again, a key message there is we, we have indications for prolia, especially people with kidney health problems. Um, and it is a very good drug, but it really should be uh, kept in mind that once started, it's going to be continued indefinitely. You mentioned drug holidays, which I think have been primarily associated with the bisphosphonates. Mm -hmm. What's the typical length of time we use a bisphosphonate and then have them hold off for a bit? Yeah. So typically with a pill, uh, uh, like a, a Fosamax weekly pill, typically five years of therapy followed by three to five years of a holiday. 
uh, with the IV form. This is most typically reclassed as the brand name used. It's typically three years followed by three years of a drug holiday. So three and three, five and five is kind of easy to remember. There can be some individualization to that depending upon circumstances, but that's the general idea. And do you watch for the bone mineral density to start decreasing, or is it just automatic, another three years we restart it? Well, you're talking with a person who's biased because as <laughs> being a bone specialist, but the, the right answer is that in most patients, we don't need to do that. Okay. In most patients, if we follow a recipe of five years on, five years off, three for IV on, three years off, for the average patient, that will work just fine to manage their fractures without having to add a lot of extra care, you know, concern regarding what the bone density test is doing. It turns out that in those holiday phases, what the bone density test is doing doesn't really tell us a lot. It doesn't. So maybe if I have a patient with unique circumstances, I might suggest it be done. But for most patients, it probably doesn't need to be done. Okay. All right. Let's turn now to what I think is probably the most popular mm -hmm. nutritional supplement on the market right now. That's vitamin D. Um, I've got so many patients taking it and for a variety of reasons. But who is really at risk for vitamin D deficiency? Well, like a lot of things uh, in medicine and beyond, it depends upon how you define deficiency. So one of our challenges is that a few years ago, um, a lot of data that suggested a level of 30 nanogram per milliliter in the blood was optimal, was heavily, heavily pushed, heavily discussed. And in North America, if you use that definition, you will find more than half of people will be below 30 at some point in the year. So all of a sudden, overnight, half of people are deficient. Uh, a more recent study looked at this from a bone point of view, just bone, nothing else, and suggested that 20 could be sufficient. And when you do that, a much smaller number of people would come under that umbrella. So that's one of our challenges is what represents deficiency and why. So from a bone point of view, we still might be concerned about people who have uh, fractures, people who have low bone density, people who have other health medical problems, nutritional problems, for example, people who are older. Um, and we would have a low threshold for being concerned about vitamin D deficiency. Um, but for the average person uh, uh, otherwise who's quite healthy, we don't really have good evidence that screening people and looking for values that are less than 30 really is going to improve their health. Um, so again, key categories that you and I would encounter as, as patients, for example, are people with, um, for example, nutritional problems of any nature, any nature. It could be a surgical history, uh, could be uh, uh, food intolerances, could be underweight, anybody of that nature, anybody who presents with bone density concerns or fracture concerns. Certain medications can interfere with vitamin D metabolism. Um, uh, seizure medications are a good example of that. Uh, people who have, uh, who have unhealthy lifestyles, you know, uh, very overweight is a very big risk factor for vitamin D deficiency. People who don't get much dairy product, don't get much sun exposure. We have that problem here in Minnesota, right. for example. So this is, I think it's appropriate to say it's not, a, not a, a minor concern. There are a lot of people who could be concerned about vitamin D deficiency, but we do have to keep, keep ourselves grounded in why are we concerned about vitamin D deficiency. And as you point out, the big trend these days isn't so much about bone health, it's about other health concerns. Mm -hmm. You mentioned living in the Midwest, and you're right. During the winter months, we don't get much sun on our skin, mm. uh, and many people don't tend to drink much milk anymore. Mm. Uh, does vitamin D levels change fast enough so that when we're acquiring vitamin D in the sun in the mm -hmm. uh, nice months, mm -hmm. that does that carry through the year or does it change fast enough that we can become D deficient in the winter months? Well, unfortunately, we can, yeah. If uh, uh, we have some nice data from a Mayo Medical Laboratory looking at just large samples of uh, people sent in with vitamin D levels and there's a very nice fluctuation where higher in the fall and lower in the spring. And you could see uh, differences of as much as uh, 10 points between fall and the spring and even a healthy person. 
Um, so as you suggest, if we arrive in the fall a little bit marginal in terms of how, how things went for us in terms of sun, uh, summer sun exposure, maybe we have reasons to avoid sun exposure with our skin health concern, for example, there's a, every reason to think that come um, April the level will be low. Yes. Okay. And I've never actually seen, at least I've never recognized a patient with true vitamin D deficiency. Yeah. I've seen it on laboratory tests. Yeah. But what are the clinical manifestations of vitamin D deficiency? So I agree with you. I don't oftentimes see that patient either who comes in with multiple fractures and, and, and muscle weakness. Uh, Osteomalacia is called in adults or rickets in children. This is kind of the full-blown vitamin D deficiency, and we, we don't see that that often, and partly because that takes years to develop. So we need a person who's really chronically ill or chronically impaired in that regard to see that kind of situation. So the challenge for us is more of our patients are coming in with blood levels that are a little bit low. Someone checked them for some reason, and and maybe they don't have um, conspicuous bone density or fracture or, some, or muscle problems that osteomalacia might be associated with, but they may have other health concerns and they wonder, is there a relationship, right? I'm not, my energy level isn't the best, my mood isn't the best, could there be a relationship here? And that's the more typical biochemical versus clinical vitamin D deficiency that you're, that you're speaking of and I, I have the same, same thing in my practice. Mm -hmm. Let's say we have a patient whose laboratory tests indicate a mild vitamin D deficiency how much should we tell them to take? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think it's a good question. If we look at the, the average person and, we, and they said, you know, I just want to be able to be assured that come spring, for example, in Minnesota, that I might have a reasonable vitamin D level. And I want to be safe. I don't want to be taking more vitamin D that, than that could be proven to be safe and effective for the average person. I think a very easy range to be confident in is 800 to 1,000 units a day would mm -hmm. be a very confident range to be in. And as you alluded to, um, Depending on how much dairy consumption we get, a uh, serving of milk is about 100 units of vitamin D. And if uh, yogurt is fortified, similar, 100 units. Uh, orange juice, 100 units per cup. So you can imagine that's a lot of servings to be able to get 120,000 units per day. So I would just tell a person, if you're interested in supplementation, look for that vitamin, multivitamin perhaps, that has that 600, 800,000 units of vitamin D per day. I've also found patients that are getting vitamin D from multiple hidden sources. Mm. You know, the calcium supplements often contain D. Yes. Multivitamins often contain yes. D. So the patient may think they're getting a certain amount in their D supplement, but there may be other sources of D in their diet. I, I think that's an excellent point. This is so true for a lot of nutrients that are fortified these days. Yeah. Also had a couple patients now. Apparently there's a 50,000 unit mm -hmm. dose out on the market mm -hmm. without prescription mm -hmm. and without any instructions. Mm -hmm. And patients, at least the patients that I had, saw this, assumed that was a daily dose. Mm. And the two that I had, where, where their D levels were sky high. Mm. I had not seen them that high. Uh, they didn't have symptoms, but what are the symptoms of excess vitamin D? So classically we would be thinking about how this extra Vitamin D is affecting uh, calcium balance in the body, um, but it takes a lot. To your point, it takes a lot of vitamin D and typically a lot of simultaneously high calcium intake to get in trouble, to actually see things like kidney stones, to actually see things like high enough calcium levels in the blood that I wouldn't feel well. So there's a pretty wide safety margin there, and it, and it really is the person who's doing both a lot of vitamin D and a lot of calcium that typically can see that picture. So for most people, they'll get high numbers in their blood, to your point, but unless they have a predisposing condition that might cause kidney stones already, which could be a problem, they likely won't have uh, immediate consequences of that. They likely won't. Okay. Kurt, is there anything else out there uh, in terms of uh, upcoming news regarding vitamin D? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, you mentioned in your clinic, and I see the same thing in my clinic, that many people 
are taking vitamin not just really for their bone health, but they're very interested in what it might do for health beyond the bones because there's lots of science that suggests that it could affect things like heart health and brain health. I mean, anything really along this. So there's been some recent debate about that because some studies that look at giving vitamin D versus giving nothing doesn't necessarily change um, what's going on in terms of do people get breast cancer or not. But a lot of criticism about those studies because maybe they didn't give enough vitamin D, for example, or treating the wrong people. People already had enough versus people who didn't have enough. So there's a pretty uh, major study coming out in the next month or so uh, called the VITAL trial, which is uh, a, a large study nationally done, um, 25,000 men and women across all states, including about a quarter of people African-American in the study, um, taking 2,000 units of vitamin D per day versus a, a placebo. And then within that study also fish oil versus placebo. And really well done in terms of looking at things like um, rates of heart disease after five years of vitamin D versus placebo, uh, cancer incidence after five years, and even things like um, uh, cognitive function and things like um, falling risk and depression. And you know, a lot of things that I think more of my patients are interested in than quite frankly their osteoporosis. Right, right. So this will be a really important trial and, and I think it will give us a lot of new information including um, maybe with more uh, doses that are more likely to make a difference if there's going to be a difference. And if these studies do not show a significant difference, it's probably going to have to cause us to reassess how much we can say about vitamin D and health beyond the bones. We've been talking about vitamin D, calcium, and osteoporosis with Dr. Kurt Kennel, a male clinic physician in endocrinology. Kurt, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Mayo Clinic conferences welcome physicians and healthcare providers from across the country and around the world. Learn from medical experts and network with colleagues at exciting destinations. Plan your next CME course by visiting ce.mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe, stay healthy, and see you next week.